while. Let me pray, and then we will conclude our time in Luke this morning. Father, we worship you. We come here this morning to give you glory, and I pray, Lord, that we're a people who don't do that solely on Sunday morning. I pray that we are a people who are conscious of giving you our worship, our praise, our glory every moment of every day. And we thank you that we get to be part of this creation that cries out to you. What a good and great and wonderful God you are. And we thank you that even in the fall, when mankind turned from you and rebelled and wandered off into sin, that you did not forsake us, but you created a plan, a plan that you had before the foundations of the world to enter into this creation, to humble yourself, to take on the frailty of humanity, to live a righteous life in Jesus, and to go to the cross for our sins that we might be redeemed. And we worship you for that. What God is like our God? And we pray, Lord, for the people that we know who are lost. Lord, we ask that you would be at work in their lives, at work in their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself. That Lord, that we might have the pleasure, the honor, the joy of partnering with you in that as we speak your word of truth into these people's lives. And Lord, hear our prayers as we pray for them. Lord, would you change hearts and draw people to yourself? And again, allow us the opportunity to be part of that. And we pray for Shannon's family, Lord, that that this would truly be a, a turning moment in their lives and they would come to know you and submit their lives to you and trust you. And we pray for our children in the back in the cove, Lord, as they're hearing the gospel message proclaimed every Sunday by these wonderful volunteers. Lord, we pray that these children would grow up to love you with all of their hearts. Bless them with that, we pray. And we give you praise and thanks for this time. Would you speak to us through your word and encourage our hearts as we enter into the joy of your word, this word that you spoke to express to us how much you love us and how much you care about us. And we worship you for these things. Amen. Well, we're going to be in the end of Luke chapter 12, so I would love for you, if you have your Bible, to turn there. Uh, As you're turning there, maybe you're a guest with us and you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. Uh, So after the service, you're welcome to hit up our very, uh, I don't know, it's it's simple. Uh, It's not complex. It's not very glorious, our bookstore. And uh, and we'd love to give you one of our Bibles. You could pull it up on an app as well, too. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to start in verse 49. Jesus is speaking here, and he says in Luke 12, 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming or or maybe a haboob is coming. (laughs) And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? 
as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. In the first few centuries after Christ ascended to sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven, the church suffered significant persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. And in one of those early stories from that time, we find the martyrdom of Polycarp. Maybe you've heard this story. Polycarp was a leader in the church of Smyrna. And after a festival where a number of Christians had been thrown to the wild animals in a stadium just for the mere sport of it, to satisfy the crowds, they actually, at the end of this, were not satisfied. And so they called for Polycarp to be brought before them into the stadium that he might be tried and executed for his faith as well. And so Polycarp was brought before the crowds, and as he was dragged into the stadium, he heard this voice from heaven declare to him, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Sort of a divine way of saying, man up, Polycarp. Words that he would certainly need in order to endure the trial that was shortly to befall him. The governing Roman authority called the proconsul accept, uh, attempted to persuade Polycarp to abandon his faith. And he said to Polycarp, swear allegiance to Caesar and I will release you. Curse the Christ. To which Polycarp replied, eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Then the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. If you will not repent, I will throw you to them. Polycarp replied, send for them. For repentance from better to worse is not a change permitted to us. The proconsul threatened again, if you despise the wild beasts, I will make you to be consumed by fire if you refuse to repent. And Polycarp answered, you threaten with a fire that burns for an hour. And in a little while is quenched, for you know nothing about the fire of judgment to come. And the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why delay? Bring what you will. And this enraged the crowds, obviously, and Polycarp was condemned to die by being burned alive at the stake. And as they approached him to nail his hands to the wooden pylon to keep him in place, he convinced them it was unnecessary to do so because God would give him all of the courage that he needed to face his death. And so they lit the fire and everyone watched in astonishment as the wood slowly or as the fire slowly consumed the wood that Polycarp was standing on and yet the flames never touched his body. He remained inside of the fire unharmed. The crowd again both amazed and yet enraged called for the executioner to come who then stabbed Polycarp, pierced him with a blade. And when he'd been pierced, the blood flowed with such quantities that it extinguished the fire that he was being martyred in. Now, I tell this story because it's inspiring, it's encouraging, but it shares some of the themes that intersect with our text from Luke 12 this morning. Themes that the church has taken notice of since the passages of the New Testament were first penned all these thousands of years ago. Fire and blood and division in the world. These are words that describe the Christian experience. It described it for the apostles as they followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Described Polycarp's experience. And it actually describes our experience. 
as Christians at Maricopa Springs. So let me read again Luke 12, verses 49 to 51, since that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus says that he came to cast fire on the earth, and his desire as he speaks these words is for that fire to already be burning. That is the longing in his heart. But what exactly is the fire that Jesus is talking about? Polycarp mentions this fire of judgment as he is talking to the proconsul, this judgment that God will one day cast upon the earth in the form of fire. Is this the fire that Jesus is talking about here? Well, I think after spending quite a bit of time looking at this, and I actually ran into a couple of you throughout the week and was like, tell me what this means. Uh, after studying this passage of Scripture and, and again wrestling with it, trying to understand, I've come to the conclusion that Jesus, I think, is talking about a, two forms of fire here. I think he has a double meaning in mind. Okay, in the Bible, when the word fire is used in a non-literal sense, it tends to have one of two potential meanings. And I think in this case, Jesus actually means both of those meanings. Flip with your Bibles, flip in your Bibles with me back just a couple of pages to Luke chapter 3. We were in Luke 3 a couple of years ago, and uh, so let me refresh you. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. In Luke 3, we encounter John the Baptist, and John the Baptist tells us about the ministry of Jesus that will follow. John tells us that what Jesus accomplishes will be done with fire. And John actually uses both meanings of that word, I think, quite clearly. Let me read Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15. It says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Do you see the two different uses of fire here? There's a sense in which fire does mean judgment for the ungodly. That's verse 17. Let me go into a little bit of detail here. God will separate out the wheat, that is the Christians, from the chaff, that is the unbelievers. And Jesus says the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. In this sense, Scripture talks about the fire of God's wrath that will consume the enemies of God and punish them for their hard and rebellious hearts towards him. This is the fire that burns and consumes. It's the fire that we find in Revelation 20 when God casts sinners into the lake of fire where they will be eternally punished for their sins against an eternally holy God. This is the part where we squirm in our seats. Now the reason that Jesus longs for this fire to be kindled is because as long as God withholds this fire from earth, Injustice prevails. Justice is not done on the earth. 
Jesus doesn't long for the fire of judgment because he's cruel and vindictive. Understand that. No, rather, he longs for this fire because our God is perfect in justice. Until this fire burns, children will continue to be abused and exploited in horrific ways around the world. The corrupt will continue to steal from the poor. Governments will misuse their power. Babies will be murdered in the womb. The righteous will be mistreated and the ungodly will flourish. And I could go on and on citing ways in which injustice reigns on earth and it breaks the heart of God. God hates injustice because justice proceeds from his perfect righteous character. Justice is an extension of who he is. And so Jesus longs for the day when the justice and righteousness of God will burn up and consume all of the injustice done by sinful man so that only goodness and only peace and only equity remain. Jesus longs for this fire to burn because Jesus longs for justice and righteousness to be done in God's creation for God's glory. Okay, yet that is not the only fire that Jesus is longing for. But before we get to this second aspect of fire, I need to pause here. John the Baptist is going to give us a hint, but I just I want to pause for a second because I want to remind you why Jesus came. Because maybe all of this talk about the justice of God and his fiery wrath towards sin, maybe it is giving you sort of this uncomfortable feeling and it's giving you an improper view of God. And so let me remind you of that often quoted verse. Maybe you've heard it, John 3, 16. Do you know this one? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Even as we talk about God's wrath towards sin and the fire of his judgment, let's not forget that Christ came out of love for mankind. Do you understand that? If you're here this morning and you are still under the fire of God's wrath and judgment, then I implore you this morning, run towards the love of Christ Jesus who came to show his love for you by dying on the cross to purify you of your sins. Yes, God is just. Yes, God hates sin. Understand that. But God also loves you. God loves you. And in Jesus Christ, his son, he has made a way for you, for me, for us, to escape the fire of judgment through love and grace. And it's important as we talk about God's wrath towards sin, his perfect justice, those, those things are true. We cannot avoid them. Scripture says it. But we need to keep in mind God's inexpressible love for mankind that he would send his son to die for us that we might be saved. Okay, back to fire and the other meaning that we find in Scripture. Look again at what John the Baptist says in Luke 3, verse 16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The second meaning of fire is the refining fire that comes with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
This is the purifying fire that falls on all of us who believe, who put our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and God. All of us who believe are purified by this fire. It's the fire of God's powerful presence to enliven the hearts of his people so that they burn with a passion for him. And we see this fire fall not in Revelation at the end of all things, where God judges the world, but we see it fall in Acts at the beginning of the church age when God establishes his new covenant. Acts chapter 2, it says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the baptism of fire that John speaks of. And the second meaning of the word fire that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 12. This is the fire that Jesus, again, he longs for this fire to be kindled. It's a miraculous work of God whereby the refining fire of the Holy Spirit consumes your dead and lifeless heart and it fills you with a passion for the things of God. It's a powerful work of God whereby your dead heart is brought to life through the work of the Spirit and your heart then burns with this unquenchable desire for God in all of his fullness. And Jesus says again that he longs for this fire to consume the hearts of his people and burn within his church. So that every believer then is ablaze with a divine and holy energy to bring God glory in every thought, in every word, in every deed. And this is a fire that consumes the heart, again, not with judgment, but with a searing love for God. Okay, now you see the the two meanings of the word fire, and you see why Jesus so desperately longs for this fire to be kindled on earth, to burn on earth as it burns in heaven. So let me ask you just a very simple and straightforward question this morning. You are in one of these fires already. Which fire are you in? Jesus says he's longing for his fire to consume you, but which fire is it? Is it the fire of his wrath that will burn you for eternity because you have a dead and unrepentant heart? Or is it the fire of his Holy Spirit that makes you alive and like a blaze of love for God to burn in your heart, empowering you to live a godly life? Hebrews 12, 29, it says that God is a consuming fire. And you have a choice in the matter as to how his fire consumes you. Is his fire the fire that will consume you because you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you are therefore still an enemy of God who loves you even as an enemy because he sent his son to die for you? Or is God the consuming fire that will ignite your heart to love and to serve him so that you burn with only one desire, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind? And I believe the choice is yours, and so I lay this question before you. Which will you choose? Which will you choose? Now flip back with me to Luke chapter 12. I think this is why in Luke 12, verse 51, Jesus says these words. Maybe you picked up on it. 
He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Some of you might hear me talk about the fire that consumes sin, and you may think to yourself, man, this is just uncivil. Nobody should talk like this. This is intolerant. People should be free to do whatever they want. And who is Grady? Who is this guy to stand up there and tell people that they might burn forever in hell under the wrath of God for sin? Maybe you think that. And verse 51, these are the words of Jesus that divide. They separate the wheat from the chaff. Many people wrongly assume that Jesus accepts all people. And in a sense, that is true. Hear me clearly. In a sense, Jesus does, in fact, accept all people. But many will choose not to receive his acceptance. Even though Jesus comes to them with open arms, they turn and shun him. Many will choose to reject him. And for those that do, Jesus brings division. He brings the fire of judgment, not peace on earth. And I admit, this is an incredibly hard passage of Scripture. I hope I'm not the only person that's ever said this to you. I admit it's hard. And so I implore you, please, choose, choose wisely. Choose Christ. Enter into his saving love rather than be divided from him. And now for those who do choose Jesus, you know who you are. I want to talk with you for a second. Those who choose him, we share in his baptism. Look at verse 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I'm not going to have you turn there. I've already had you flip around, and I am going to make you turn somewhere else in a minute. So Mark 10, let me just summarize it. Jesus He has this interesting conversation with the disciples, James and John. They come to Jesus and they they ask him so boldly, they say, Jesus, let us share in your power and authority. When you enter into your kingdom, let us sit at your right hand and your left hand. And Jesus says this in reply. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized And they said to him, we are able, again, quite bold. And Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In the literal sense, the baptism that Jesus is referring to is his death on the cross. And this is why he has great distress until it is accomplished. This is why the disciples can't share in it. Jesus is looking forward to the moment when he will hang on the cross and he will bear the wrath of God for the sins of mankind and his heart is deeply, deeply troubled by that thought. He knows that in a very short time, Jesus will be baptized with our sin. God will reject him and punish him for all of the sins of humanity for which Jesus is completely innocent. And he will suffer the greatest suffering imaginable. He will be torn from fellowship with the Father and condemned under the burden of your sin and mine. And it's not just the excruciating pain of being crucified on a cross that troubles Jesus. That's that's nothing compared to the alienation from God the Father. It is the crushing burden of our sin, the consuming fire of God the Father, who in a moment of inexpressible torment will judge and condemn Jesus for our sin 
which Jesus never committed. And this is the baptism that causes him great distress until it's accomplished. The baptism which James and John cannot possibly share in. Only the eternal holiness and righteousness of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ is capable of bearing the baptism of sin and death that was poured upon our Savior on the cross. And yet there is a sense in which we do share in this baptism. That's what Jesus says to James and John. There's a great glimmer of hope in these words of Jesus from Luke. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. There's a sense here in which Jesus looks forward to the accomplishment of his death because in dying for us on the cross, he opens to us the possibility for us to be raised with him in the resurrection. Even as Jesus dreads the suffering ahead of him, he joyfully anticipates the blessed outcome of his sacrifice that all who believe in him will be united to God through his death and resurrection. I think the Apostle Paul helps us understand this. You've got to turn to Romans 6 with me. It's to the right in your Bible, past Luke, and there's no shame in using an index if you need to, to get to Romans. I would love for you to turn to Romans 6 with me. We're going to do a baptism after church today, so this is so perfectly appropriate. I love it. And uh, at, uh, at the baptism, which will be at 1 o'clock, uh, we are going to spend just a moment looking at this passage in Romans 6 again. So I think it's really powerful that we turn to this passage now. Let me read Romans 6, 3 through 8. I hope you'll read along. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Here we begin to understand what this baptism is. Jesus, again, he was immersed in our sin and death. He had no sin in and of himself. But he was immersed in ours. He went down into the waters of our sin for our sake. And yet there, our sin had no power over him. Death could not hold him in the grave. God did not allow the corruption of our sin to have power over his son. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He became immersed in our sins so that we might become immersed in his righteousness. He took on our sin and death so that we might take on his righteousness and his eternal life. And we cannot possibly share in his baptism in the sense that we could actually atone for the sins of the world, or even far less than that, atone for our own sins. You cannot do that. But we do share in the baptism of Christ, in what he accomplished on the cross, he accomplished for us. 
Jesus was indeed distressed as he looked forward to the suffering that was ahead of him, but he saw it as a worthy endeavor to bring glory to God and to give eternal life to all who believe. What a beautiful and precious thought that is. And now again, we come to verse 51 in Luke 12. Flip back there. I'm putting you to work this morning. In Luke 12, verse 51, Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Some people think that Jesus came to teach peace, to bring peace on earth. But if that was the case, Jesus was an epic, miserable failure, wasn't he? I mean, think about what happened 15 years ago today. The world is no better today than it was 2,000 years ago before Christ died. Read the front page of any newspaper, particularly today probably, right? And you're going to see there's no peace on earth. But Jesus says he didn't come to bring peace on earth. He brought a much more significant peace. He brought us peace with God. Eternal peace, enduring peace. Not peace as the world gives that comes and goes and is very fleeting, but everlasting peace in our heart of hearts. The peace that settles deep in the soul of those who believe and gives us hope for today and tomorrow and every day into eternity. But the work that Jesus does in the lives of believers, it's divisive. Let me try and explain. What I mean by that is that we cannot and should not look like the world. We have been divided from it by the work of Christ Jesus. The fire that falls on us is the power of the Holy Spirit. The baptism that we have is the baptism into eternal life, resurrection, freedom from sin and death. How then could we possibly live our lives and look like the world, like unbelievers, like the unjust, like the unrighteous, like the ungodly. And sometimes it breaks my heart how worldly Christians can be. I'll be honest, sometimes it breaks my heart how worldly I can be. As if the wheat and the chaff have not already been divided. And it's simply not acceptable for us as Christians to live like worldly people. Christ came to divide the righteous from the unrighteous. The baptized from the unbaptized, the resurrected from among the dead, the righteous from the unrighteous, the spirit-filled from those who are under the fire of judgment. That doesn't mean that we mistreat those who are dead in their sins by lording it over them with some kind of holier-than-thou snobbery. That's not what I'm getting at. It only means that we cannot now behave like we are one of them. The gospel divides, it sets apart. We are in Christ, not in the world. The world is perishing. But for those of us who believe, we are being renewed in the image of Jesus Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit every moment of every day. That is, those of you indeed who share in the baptism of Jesus. So let me close with just a few application questions. Just keep in mind, for those of us who've chosen to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we've been filled with the Spirit of God. 
Our hearts burn with his life inside of us. We are alive. We have already been baptized into his righteousness. The gospel has divided us and set us apart from the world. And so then let me ask you, fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, does your life really look different? Are the days of your life marked and defined by living in Christ's resurrection life through the power of the Holy Spirit? Do your neighbors and your coworkers think that there's really something funky about you? Or do you blend in really, really well? Do you burn with this unquenchable, fiery passion of the Holy Spirit? Or do you just go to church? Do you live in the resurrection life of Christ that God has bestowed upon you through the baptism into his righteousness? Or are you just a Christian with a bumper sticker that proves it? Jesus came and he suffered so that he could light a fire in your heart. Does that fire really rage and burn within you? Let me pray for us. God, spare us from a life of mediocrity. Lord, keep us from being hypocrites who profess with our mouths when it's safe to do so that we love you, but who don't truly have hearts that burn inside for you. Lord, would you kindle this fire here at Maricopa Springs? Would you make us alive with this resurrection life that you've given us in your son Jesus? Would you fill us with the truth of this baptism that we have been covered in his righteousness as he has taken all of our sin and paid for it in full on the cross? Father, would you fill us with the burning passion, the burning fire, the power of your Holy Spirit that you give to those who love you? And Lord, would you grow us Would you grow this fire inside of us so that it becomes all-consuming, not a casual hobby, not a passing thought, not just a moment of our day, but an all-consuming part of who we are so that we truly desire nothing more than you, Lord. God, would you do that? Because we, we can't do that. We ask you to do that, to pour out your Holy Spirit on our church, to fill us with this passion, this fire. And Lord, we worship you that you you are the God who has chosen to do this, that you are the God who loves us so much that you sent your son to save us out of wrath, that you poured on your own son the wrath of our sin so that we could know your love and your grace. God, we worship you for that thought this morning. Amen.